The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. Negotiate Anything is produced by the American Negotiation Institute. And with over 3 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made it the number one negotiation podcast in the world. I'm Kwame Christian, and I'm the director of the American Negotiation Institute. We're growing, and I want to introduce you to our new team members and new trainers. This will give you new and diverse perspectives on negotiation and conflict resolution. And that's why Shane Martin, our head of sales and partnerships, is going to serve as co-host of the show from time to time. We're excited to continue to provide you with the best content that will help to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, our team conducts negotiation and conflict resolution trainings in the United States and abroad. Our trainings will give you the practical skills you need to resolve conflict, negotiate, lead, and persuade with confidence. Click the link in the description below to learn more about how we can make your difficult conversations easier. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kwame. It's great to be here. Yeah, it is our pleasure to have you, my friend. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? I appreciate you asking. So I am a certified forensic interviewer and executive resource. And often when I say those two things back to back, people look at me like my dog when I ask her to do just about anything. Uh, but, but really taking the transition from investigations to executive resources really easy when we stop to think that the cognitive process that leads interrogation suspects to truthfully commit to saying I did it is essentially identical to the cognitive processes that leads customers to commit to saying I'll buy it and employees to commit to saying I'll do it. So, you know, really with that backdrop, I created the disciplined listening method to teach executives how to use the truth to their advantage by applying strategic and ethical observation and persuasion techniques. This is so cool. Um, uh, the listeners can instantly tell why I was so excited to have you on the show today, Mike. And when you say interrogator, can you tell a little bit about specifically what type of interrogations you were doing? Sure. So the majority of what I did would be more on the white collar side, private sector. Uh, yes, I've been on teams and led interrogations more on the, the person to person crime in the public sector. But really, the majority of what I did comes from the, the fraud, embezzlement, theft, um, more corporate type scenarios where we had sexual harassment, discrimination, bullying, um, sharing, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that I did. I don't know what the technical term for this would be, but sharing confidential information with competitors, th things like that. Okay. Oh, that's fascinating. All right. And now today our focus is going to be on deception, lying when people are misleading us. And so let's start off by doing a brief investigation in into the anatomy of deception because you my friend you see it in a completely different way because for us we go to work and we expect the truth and you kind of go to work and expect people <laughs> to lie directly to your face so how do you see deception as somebody's last available good decision 
and it, that might sound counterintuitive to people, but I remember really early on in my investigative career, really before I even began in doing interrogations myself, I was watching my boss at the time conduct an interrogation. And he started accusing the person that he was interrogating of lying and giving them the old, you need to tell me the truth now. And I didn't have any formal education on the topic at that point. But even then I'm sitting there going, that seems like a bad idea to me. Like that doesn't seem like an effective approach. So, you know, there are many lessons that I learned, many key life lessons really that I learned as a result of my experience in the interrogation room. One of the ones that comes to the top of the list is honestly, be happy when people lie to you. And I don't mean that sarcastically in any way, shape or form. But when we talk about disciplined listening, one of the things we talk about is listening for intelligence, not information. And often when people lie, they really are exercising what they believe to be their last good decision at the moment, right or wrong. That's how they see it. And the vast majority of the time, especially in the context we're talking about, they're not lying to hurt you. They're lying to protect themselves. They're lying to avoid some sort of consequence that's either real or perceived. It's, it's real in their world, almost certainly. In our world, you know, we might look at that as a perceived consequence. So really, instead of getting offended or upset or angry or insulted, how dare somebody lie to me when I'm entitled to the truth? Instead, it's listening for the intelligence in there and saying, okay, let me stop and start to consider really quick, why did they feel like that was a good decision for them? What consequence are they trying to avoid? And what door did they just unlock? Because by lying, what they're telling us is they're willing to participate in the conversation. They just want it to be under this set of rules to start. So instead of forcing our rules or our direction on them up front, when I say embrace the lie, I don't mean ignore it. I don't mean celebrate it. But what we can do is embrace it as a way, as a new road to get us to the same destination. There's so much gold in there, Mike. There's so much gold in here. And now there's so many different avenues for us to explore here. But I want to explore something that the audience might not have seen coming. Because we're going to go deeper into what to do and why it's an opportunity, why lying when somebody lies to you, it's actually an opportunity for you in the conversation. But I'm guessing that as people were listening to you describe lying from your perspective, based on their experience, your experience, they were probably emotionally viscerally disagreeing with everything <laughs> that you said. And that that emotional response demonstrates exactly why it's so hard for us to handle when people lie to us. So let's explore the psychological impact that lying has on us so we can understand our own psychological barriers so we can actually implement the tools that you're going to teach us later on. It's, it's a great point. And you are you likely illustrated exactly what they were feeling like they felt offense to me saying don't take offense quite likely. And honestly, that's still a good thing, because most of us were raised to believe that lying is unethical and it is contrary to our value system and all of these things. Now, we likely raise our children to believe that just like we teach them how to lie when we raise them as well. Now, we, we might teach them how to lie about trivial things like, oh, my sister's calling, tell her I'm busy, even though I'm here watching the Red Sox and totally available. <laughs> so there's that interesting contradiction. So on one hand, it really is a compliment to who we are as people, these values, these moral standards that we have. But on the other hand, it's counterproductive to the goals we are trying to achieve. So in that moment, what is more important to us? Asserting our perceived moral superiority, 
defending our perceived entitlements or connecting someone and connecting with somebody in a manner that they need to be connected with in order for us to move forward to achieve a goal. And for many of the people that come from similar backgrounds to me, we kind of learned that the hard way. And thankfully, the vast majority of people I spoke with were really good people that made regrettable decisions based on changing circumstances in their lives that they weren't prepared to deal with. Now, some of those regrettable decisions were bad, like unforgivable, like things that you shouldn't say or do to other people, sure. And there was a small percentage that probably don't fit in the good people box, but thankfully that that's a real small percentage. But even in those, like when we get called in, our job is to get the truth. Our job is to literally document the truth in as much detail so we can turn that truth over to somebody else and let that group, that person, that mechanism, whatever it is, decide what the proper accountability for these actions should be. And too many times people early on in their interrogation career confuse the both. Like I'm supposed to hold this person accountable and get the truth. Well, good luck doing both at the same time. So for us, it was that sort of forced indoctrination, if that's an acceptable phrase to use, that you know, our job is to get the truth. Therefore, is to suspend judgment. And by suspending judgment and focusing on the goals we need to achieve, not necessarily my personal feelings, we'll get to the truth. And then I can process my feelings after in a way that's healthy and doesn't contradict the people I'm trying to take care of or the problem I'm trying to resolve. And so it sounds like what we're doing is we are recognizing the supremacy of our objectives, right? And so what we need to focus on what it is that we came to accomplish here. The goal here is to get the truth and we want to get the truth so we can make good decisions. We can't make good decisions on, on bad intelligence unless we get lucky, right? And we don't want to, to have to resort to luck in order to be successful here. And I, I love what you just said too, because you said, it's not that we are subordinating our emotions to the point where we do not process them. I'm going to process them in a way that is productive and constructive. If I try to do it right now, while still trying to accomplish my goal of getting information, those two things will conflict and it will be confusing, messy, and probably unsuccessful. And one of the distinctions that you made that was really, really interesting was the distinction between information and intelligence. So what does that mean to you? Oftentimes we get trapped in, especially in negotiations or in a business development process, we get we put ourselves in a box of listening for information. So we might go in with a particular agreement we want or a particular solution we're trying to arrive at. And so we look at it from our perspective and think, okay, if I can get Kwame to say these two or three things, then that means this puzzle piece will fit. So as soon as I can get him to say those things, I'm going to hit him with my half of this puzzle piece and see if we can build this picture. And I'm sure you've had plenty of people on that have talked about our biases and confirmation bias and perception and what people are really communicating versus what we tell ourselves. But it really becomes, you know, target fixation where you say something that's close to what I think I need to hear and I jump on it because I'm not in a learning mentality. I'm in a verification mentality. So in order to really stay in that learning mentality and assume there's always something out there I don't know, how do I start to steal and tweak a phrase listening between the lines? What, when I listen to the words that somebody says, the tone they say, the speed of delivery, the body language associated, or as the conversations continue, how they change the words they use to convey the similar message, 
what is the message underneath the message that I'm getting? And a, an easy example maybe to share could be we're sitting across from a team and the, the person who at least has the microphone for the team, whether they're in charge or not, says, well, I guess this is something we're going to have to consider. And somebody sitting across the table hears that and says, oh, they're open. That's a win. There's still a ton of resistance there. Like we have not aligned this with their self-image, with their decision-making process at all. Whereas if that same person with the microphone says, prior to the meeting, we all discussed this opportunity and we are in alignment that this is something we're committed to exploring. All too often, people can hear those two statements as identical when they are drastically different. So when we talk about listening for intelligence versus information, it's really about getting out of that validation mentality, staying in a learning mentality and picking up on these nuances that we can capitalize to nudge or kick a conversation in a different direction to be more beneficial. Hi, I'm Kevin Kanaki, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at the American Negotiation Institute. Did you know our company offers completely customizable negotiation workshops? The negotiation and conflict resolution skills that your team will learn from these workshops are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly, and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube, LinkedIn, and Instagram accounts to see our daily negotiation content. Thanks for listening. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. So what we have to do then is we, I, I guess the, the best term that comes to mind is forensic listening, right? The just like, it, which is what you do. It's the, it's really dissecting the words to see what it really means. And it's, it's recognizing that there are words that are said 
and we each of the words that are said have a definition, but we have to figure out what it means to them in this specific context. And I believe in order to do this, we have to slow down and process on a deeper level, right? Amen. And I almost jumped through the screen and interrupted and committed a, a cardinal sin of my own there. But you just said two of the most important things. And one you said directly, the way that I like to say it is context is king. So how people are communicating and what it means in the context of this situation could be different in another context. And often what we lose is that contextual awareness. We start, whether it's we fall prey to confirmation bias or in that check the box mentality, there's other options as well, but we lose that contextual awareness and therefore we drop the ball and create missed opportunities Slowing it down is a big one. Literally slow down how we breathe, slow down how we talk, take pauses in between. Like literally the more we can physically slow the process down, the more we can listen. And what I'm about to say intentionally sounds counterintuitive, but it's so true. The single most important part of listening is talking. And it's not just limiting our exterior conversation but it's that internal monologue that's the really big problem. Ooh, okay, let's go deeper into that. I can't possibly have anything more important to say to you than you have to say to yourself and vice versa, the same goes. So literally we, we can't multitask, everybody knows that. If we try to do two things at once, quality of both suffers. So if I'm talking to myself while you're talking to me, I'm the primary voice. Like your voice is not gonna outweigh my voice. No disrespect, right. of course. So. Yeah. I'm going to be fully focused on my voice and picking up on pieces of what you're saying. So there's some really big problems in here. I'm going to pick up likely on just enough of what you're saying to trick myself into thinking I got the whole message when I didn't. And I'm most likely talking to myself about what I want to say next, what my assumptions are about where this is going, how you are lining up with my expectations, good, bad, or indifferent, I could be diving deep into my emotions and now really bringing my emotions and defending what I think or feel and derailing the conversation. So when we think about this from a negotiation standpoint, oftentimes, and everybody talks about preparation, but being prepared to the degree that we can significantly limit our internal monologue during the conversation. So while you're talking, I can be as close to 100% focused on what you're saying as possible is really what's going to help me gather this intelligence and move on. That contextual, contextual awareness is key. And like you said, slowing the pace is super key. Wow. Okay. And so what advice do you have for people as they start to quiet that inner voice? My first big piece of advice is recognize when it sets off because we talk to ourselves all day long. We all do. And it's not unhealthy in and of itself. But if I'm engaged in a high stakes conversation, important conversation, value driven conversation, choose your title for it. And all of a sudden, while you're communicating with me, I feel myself talking to myself. I need to check that really fast because it might be productive. I might just say, whoa, catch that. This is what he's really thinking. This is what he really feels. Okay, that's good. But as soon as I catch that, I've got to refocus and, and I've got to limit it. The other healthy, I guess, or I guess the unhealthy thing we want to try to avoid is I really, really want to be in tune to when I'm focusing on my emotions, how somebody is making me feel. 
I'm not invalidating the emotion, not in any way, shape or form. The emotion is likely quite valid, certainly from our perspective. It's also statistically probably not very helpful either. So if I can see myself or catch myself having that emotional conversation, now I can say, check it. Why am I really feeling this way? And how do I get refocused? Like you said, I'm not going to ignore it, but let me process this later when it's helpful and not counterproductive to what I'm trying to achieve now. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And, and Mike, I, one of the things that helped me to do this is meditation, mm-hmm. just trying to meditate every day. I think I'm on a 79 day streak right now on Headspace. Awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's been really surprising just how much it helped and just how quickly it started to help. It's not like, oh, I started floating instead of walking or anything like that, <laughs> but just the clarity of thought, recognizing thoughts. And I've started mm-hmm. to think of thoughts in terms of trains of thoughts, because we have that term train of thought. Sure. But now I think of myself as a, at a station and the trains will go past. I have an option as to whether or not I jump on that train. And so when I can recognize, all right, hey, hey, this Kwame, you're too deep in your head. Let's bring it back. Now that I recognize I have a choice, I can make the right choice. But when we're not really attuned to what's happening internally, then we don't even put ourselves in a position to make those, those internal choices that you're saying we should make. I love it. I love it. I think your train station analogy is perfect. Thank you. Well, perfect. Well, let's, let's get into now, what do we actually do with this opportunity? So first, let's clarify how deception is actually an opportunity for you, the person who is being lied to. And then we'll talk about what we actually do about it. As I kind of mentioned earlier, often it's an opportunity for us because in their own way, they're letting us know the current ground rules they're willing to engage. And generally, somebody talking to us is more more productive than somebody not talking to us. There's exceptions to that, of course. But by and large, especially in the context we're discussing negotiations, if they're engaged, that's good for us. That's something that we can work with. That's something that we can build on. So the first thing we want to do, and this might sound trite, but really is keep in mind, what are the goals we're trying to achieve? And not just the short term, like I need to get this quick agreement, like I get this quick yes or acknowledgement to move on. What are the long-term strategic goals that we're trying to achieve? And if I can keep those bigger strategic goals in mind, now I can help let those emotional trains pass that I shouldn't be jumping on and stay focused. So instead of saying to myself, they just lied to me, or how dare they, or now I'm so filling your favorite four letter word after that, you know, whatever it might be. Now it's, how does that help? Like literally, how does that lie that they just told me help me move forward? So I wanna start trying to considering two things at the same time. What are the consequences they're trying to avoid? And how can this help me move forward? And I'll stop after this, I promise. It's important to remember when we think about consequences, the number one fear that will stop most people from doing most things is not failure. It's embarrassment. It is feeling judged. It is losing face. And so many times in negotiations, people lie to us as a face-saving mechanism. But we take it as a personal affront. So while you're looking to get out of a fight, I'm finding my mouthpiece. And we're coming at this from two completely different angles. So instead of for me trying to create that fight that you're trying to avoid, I want to listen to that and start thinking to myself, okay, 
I prefer it didn't go this way, but here's, here's the road that I can take. So now how do I take that starting point that Kwame just gave me and allow him to save face, protect his self-image and patiently start working my way to where I need to be with that information. It makes so much sense. And, and it also helps me to understand the value of slowing down too, because you have to, like you said, let those trains go past. And then you have to think strategically about this. What's my long-term goal? And then how do I get there in this conversation too? And so when you think about that long-term goal, it gives you a, a different perspective. And it's almost like recruiting a different version of yourself to see the situation as well. So we have the version of ourselves who, that exists in the present and the future of ourselves that, that exists, that will exist and says, hey, you know what? It'll help me out if you approach this slightly differently than what your emotions are telling you to do. And so, so now that we have that understanding, that that kind of framework to it what do we actually do in the conversation if somebody is has, has deceived you or you believe they have i promise i will answer your question with the positive it requires i'm going to break a rule and start with the negatives i think it's super important don't confront them on it <laughs> like yes and, uh, unless we are totally out of options which we very rarely are even when we yeah. feel like it don't confront them on it Think about in our lives, how many times have we ever said to somebody, you're lying to me and had them go, well, yeah, I mean, that never, ever happens. By rule, almost always, if we accuse somebody of lying, they deny it, which now means they've lied twice. They've got two flags in the sand they have to defend, and they can only save face by continuing to defend the lie. So generally what we like to do is we like to accept it and build on it. And I would like to make a clarification that accepting and agreeing are two different things. Like, I don't mean accept it as fact. I don't mean agree with it, you know, chisel it in stone, so let it be written. By accepting it, we mean, okay, this is now the point, the new starting point in the conversation I'm willing to work with. Because often if people intentionally withhold information, intentionally provide false information, intentionally massage it, the, the information a little bit. Often they do so preparing to defend themselves against the inevitable attack that's about to come. So if we don't give them that inevitable attack, those defenses come down. Often the direct approach, what we feel like we're entitled, what we should be able to do is the path of most resistance. So having that emotional cognitive discipline to literally, oftentimes the first words out of my mouth are literally okay or thank you, which just right there diffuses the potential resistance. And then to steal a phrase from a South African friend of mine, I'm going to try to unpack it. I'm going to try to encourage them to continue because generally when they continue, again, especially in the context you and I are talking about today, that liar massaged information is going to unravel itself the more that they talk. And we are going to find additional windows of intelligence. So the more they talk about it, the more their real interests may emerge, the more their real fears they're trying to avoid may emerge. So I'm sure that you have spent hours upon probably months or years worth of hours in your professional life encouraging or teaching people to negotiate the real issue, which is behind the issue we're probably talking about. And that same thing, the, the longer we let them talk and the more we give them the opportunity to feel comfortable talking, you know, questions can be perceived as invitations or attacks. When we follow up, we want to do so with a curious tone, not a, oh yeah, tone, like don't keep them on the defensive. 
then this intelligence will open up. And now we can start reloading our approach and choosing the best path to go. This is great because when I think about the um, the path of most resistance versus the path of least resistance and, and the, the desire, the emotional desire to confront people, really what our emotions are telling us is legitimate is first, again, we talked about putting our own emotional needs in front of our objective goals that we know that, but then we lie to ourselves and say, but I can accomplish my goals by doing this. And I can come at this person with so much force, because that's all you have at that point. If you were using that direct approach, so much force that I blow through their defenses and I leave them so hurt and crippled that they cannot defend themselves and they submit to my power and force. That's really what we're saying. And so we're saying instead of trying to break through any type of defenses, (laughs) your whole strategy should be for them to lower their defenses so there's less resistance so you can almost they invite you in if you do it the right way i love it i love it the patience pays off and two quick thoughts one if we want to say or do something because it's going to make us feel better rest assured it's going to make the other person feel worse and that's probably not going to help us achieve our goals i'm going to steal your train analogy for a minute One of the things that I like to say, which I'll give you credit, I promise, but I might now start using a little bit of what you said too, because I like it that much, is when we feel like we need to respond to somebody and our heart rate is up, we feel the blood in our face, maybe our hands start tightening it up. For me, it's my toes and my shoes will start curling sometimes. If we feel any of that, whatever the first words are that are coming into your mouth, swallow them. Do not say them. And this is where I love your train analogy. Literally, you let that first train go. And now start double checking the second and the third and the fourth and wait until you see one that you feel like is at least reasonably productive before you jump on board and let those words come out. Absolutely. And again, I think one of the things that is that hurts us is our general impatience. We're an instant gratification society. Right. And so we want to not just get a solution, but we want a quick solution as well. And so sometimes we'll have to sit there in silence for three, five maybe 10 seconds and until we get on a train that that's productive. And that leads us to doing what you're suggesting, which is unpacking that. And so now, now that we're at the point where we're, we've been presented with the deception and we said, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. What does unpacking that look like? I'll answer that question. I promise. I'd like to time to something you just said first, if you don't mind. <laughs> that works. Yeah. You talk about time, wanting something quick, that impatience, I'm going to force this in because I think it's super important to consider. Time is the enemy of empathy. Anytime we are prioritizing time over empathy, time over listening, time over quality, anytime we prioritize time over quality, quality suffers. We think about that in production or design. We almost never think about that in conversations, but it's so true. So literally, if in any conversation we are thinking to ourselves, I have to resolve this quickly, we are agreeing with ourselves that we are willing to sacrifice quality for time. And so, and this also comes straight out of the interrogation room. I can't tell you how many times we got a great confession, and this includes my teammates, please, I'm not just speaking about myself, got a great confession somewhere around the 26 or 27 minute mark that maybe we could have got part of that at the eight or nine minute mark. 
And when we show those videos in some of the training classes I used to teach and they still teach, people in the class will be like, well, you could have got them in eight minutes. Well, I could have got that in eight minutes. I could have got just a little bit, but we got the whole thing at 27. I'm not good at math, but wasn't those extra amount of minutes you know, worth the investment at that point? So you know, for everyone that's listening, just consider that time is the enemy of empathy. Time is, is the enemy of quality. I'll leave that there for you and then I'll go answer your question, I promise. Yeah, that's such a great point. And Michael, I say, I tell this to the listeners all the time. They're, they're realizing that this podcast is really just selfishly my therapy. Um, <laughs> you know, I I'm better at this in the business world than I am at home. And I, and I realized I'm, I'm glad you said that because most of the experts that I talk to say the exact same thing. Yeah, sure. And now I'm, I'm realizing another dimension that leads to that failure is because after a long day of work and then coming home and putting my energetic five-year-old to bed and you have an energetic four-year-old too, um, I'm exhausted. And then we have to have a difficult conversation. And I'm just thinking to myself, I, I actually think these words, how can I end this conversation as fast as possible? Yeah. And that's when you make mistakes. And then I sound like a jerk because I, like you said, um, time is the enemy of empathy. You said, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, now I realize that that mentality by itself is one is one of the major reasons why I struggle. This is, this is incredibly helpful. Well, thank you for inviting me to your therapy session. <laughs> um, our mind's eye is laser focused. And I'm guilty. Of the, like for me, my wife is a chief human resources officer. And we both do. And I don't mean to throw her under the bus. She's going to listen to this and her ears are going to pick up right now. But we both, like, in, when we do it professionally, yes, there's an emotional attachment, but there's less. Because we love each other so much and because we care so much, when we get into the conversation with each other, the same rules that we can follow in the professional conversation can be a little bit harder because of the extra addition, the additional emotion in how much we love each other involved in that conversation. But the mind's eye is laser focused. So literally, if I say to myself, how can I end this conversation as fast as possible? I have now prioritized ending the conversation. I have not prioritized creating the agreement or the results or the emotion or the feeling in whoever I'm talking with that, that really should be prioritized. Man, that's powerful. That's that's powerful. That's great. And so so now with the unpacking, what, yes. what does that look like? So when we unpack it, generally it starts with a statement of acceptance or understanding and then an a open follow-up question. And I'll do a couple of examples because I know that sounds like, you know, negotiating 101 at your local university type response. And I don't mean it that way. But when we say start with an acceptance of understanding, like we mentioned earlier, I want to right off the bat, I want to start to diffuse their defenses. I want to change their perspective as how we're going to continue this conversation moving forward. So it literally might be something like, thank you for sharing that with me. Okay, no problem. I can understand where somebody might be thinking that. I'm going to, I'm going to give them some sort of statement of acceptance. And really, there's a three-step process that we follow. It's accept, reframe, justify. Accept, reframe, justify. So what I want to do is I want to initially give them that statement of acceptance. Let's, let's diffuse this argument right now before it starts because it's not helpful and there's no point. Then what I want to do is I want to give them some sort of statement to reframe the conversation we're about to have. And then we talked about saving face. 
I want to give them a justification statement that allows them to save face with whatever it is that they choose to say next. So I'm not going to ask them to do a 180 degree pivot. Oh yeah, you're right. I should have told you this. I, I, I lied. That's not what I'm going for. But what I am going for is degrees and shifts. I want to begin to get a, at least a couple of degrees shift in their conversation. I want them to feel more comfortable being open. We talk about trust in negotiations. Trust is synonymous with vulnerability. I have to give them an excuse to feel a little bit more vulnerable in order to continue the conversation. And you certainly know your audience far better than I do. If you want to throw out a quick example, I'm more than happy to come up with a three-step process on, on how we would do that. I don't mean to put you on the spot. I guess I probably should have warned you about that in advance. But if there's something that you think is common for your group, I'm happy. And if not, I'll make one up. Yeah, let's do it. Because we, we do sparring sessions uh, on the podcast. So this could kind of... Uh, act as the, the, the impromptu sparring session here. I, I love this. So let's say it's a leader within a company and they have a person on the team who is underperforming and there's some kind of thing happening in their personal life, but they don't want to tell why they're underperforming. And so they keep on saying, hey, everything is going to be fine. I'm going to get this thing done. And then they don't get it done in a timely manner. And it keeps happening over and over and over again. So they just keep saying, oh, yeah, my bad. I, I just let it slip. And so that's the, the thing that they're hiding. Great example. So there's a couple of ways and I got to keep an eye on the clock because we could do this one for like an hour. Oh, we're good. Uh, but a couple of ways to handle it. I'll do two. One is either pre missed deadline or at the earliest indication that the deadline is going to be missed, the kind of that first opportunity. And then we'll do another one for when the deadline is upon us. Like we, we got to fix this stat. So in that first one, remember, especially if somebody is falling behind on something, the key is to help them save face. If you want anyone to say or do anything that they maybe don't want to do, I'm going to put a number on it that I feel confident. At least 85% of that battle is helping them line their self-image up with whatever we want them to say or do. So I've got to think, how do I help them save face? So if just for the sake of conversation, if you were that employee and I was that leader, if we sit down and I say, Kwame, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to, to sit down and have a conversation. From our perspective, really one of the most important things we can do is find additional opportunities to support our team whenever it's necessary. And from our standpoint, that can be a little bit difficult sometimes because from our position, people typically aren't going to volunteer things that are perhaps frustrating them or impeding their progress on something. So, so we have to try to go find it often. And often when we do, we find that maybe they're in a situation where they've got five different managers asking them to do five different things at the same time. Or maybe they're in a situation where they have a teammate who means well, but may have made some mistakes that the rest of the team is trying to cover for Maybe the customer threw in some last minutes changes, which happens all the time, regardless of the deadline, because we know the customer's always right. And we even see situations where sometimes people have stuff going on in their family outside of work that's impacting what's happening here. And for us, it's really understanding how can we potentially help in any of those areas. So Kwame, let me ask you this. If you had to say, just looking at kind of where you are right now on this project, what may be the biggest frustration you're experiencing that could be inhibiting some of the productivity? Mike, that's so good. <laughs> that is so good. 
you you it's so i think using layman's terms with just with the justify position um like the third step it sounds almost like and you correct me if i'm if i'm mischaracterizing it it's almost like we're giving them an excuse that legitify like legitimate oh my gosh i'm sleepy i have a six-week-old too i forgot to mention that too that um makes (laughs) what they are saying legitimate like that that's essentially what we're doing right it's a hundred percent as leaders excuses, drive us up a wall sideways. I don't have time for your excuses. I want your accountability and I want your production and I want it five seconds ago, but that's our sense of entitlement, which is entirely counterproductive to what we're trying to achieve. So instead of falling into the entitlement trap, not only should we capitalize on excuses when people give them to us, because that's the road they want to travel to talk about the problem. So instead of slamming the gate, let's just walk that road. The other option is to give them excuses up front. And one of the tweaks that we use when we do that is I don't want to say, Kwame, you might be in a situation where you are, you are, you are, you are. Because every time I say the word you, I'm jabbing you right in your self-image. It only takes two or three of those before you're like, nope. And even if you wanted to talk about it now, you're not. But when I say often when we sit down with our team, we find that they might be, they might be, they might be. For students of Robert Cialdini, you might recognize that in that illustration, arguably, we are using four to six of the seven automatic mechanisms of persuasion that allow people to line up their self-image and reduce their resistance to what we want to share by giving them the excuse up front. In those types of conversations, we love to preach that the best time for someone to take accountability for their actions isn't at the beginning of the conversation when we want them to, it's at the end of the conversation when they have the opportunity to line their self-image up with it. Oh man, this is so great because it's clear it's been clear throughout this episode, but it made even more clear now that our strategy, the strategy that works, the strategy that we know to work because of hours and hours of hundreds and thousands of interrogations that have been recorded by people whose job it is to detect deception in, in conversations with people who in that moment they feel their job is to deceive you. Like we, we have a very large sample size to show that the, the strategy that works is the exact thing that we don't want to do because our emotions, like you said, they'll make us want to uh, like elevate ourselves while putting other people down. We want them to feel bad. You made me feel bad because you lied to me. I'm taking that personally. So I'm going to make you feel bad. And so the key to this strategy is making getting a positive self-image and getting it to align with our goals. And I think that's the biggest thing that people struggle with here because they say, wait, Mike, so I need to make people feel okay and safe and understood and respected and validated in this process. <laughs> madness, madness. Often when we go into these conversations, we even if we're preparing to go into them, we think to ourselves, okay, what do I need to say to Kwame in order to get Kwame to say or do what I need Kwame to say or do? But that is an inverted and opposite way to approach it because now I'm focusing on satisfying my needs and my perspectives. Instead, I should be asking myself, what does Kwame need to experience in order for Kwame to feel comfortable saying or doing whatever it is I need him to say or do? And if I can make that switch prep, 
then the execution is even better. And I promised you a second example. I'll do this one. So I'll keep it short for your audience. Very long story short, I got called to an area that I used to work with somebody that I had a professional relationship with because he was concerned with his ability to get the truth from somebody he had done an uh, investigation on. It was theft at a, like a warehouse type environment. So being the response, I'm from the Northeast. We only speak sarcasm. So being the responsible friend, I gave him a hard time. Like, why are you calling me? You can't do this. Da, da, da. I get there. They show me this guy. And I'm like, I probably should have kept my mouth shut. He was a <laughs> physically imposing young man, tattooed from his knuckles to his ears, from an urban environment. Like somebody who, you know, the average law and order viewer would see and say, well, good luck with that. Mm. So. I sit down and have the conversation and I would like to say up front that thank goodness I've had great training, great mentors, great techniques to set myself and my former teammates up for success in a lot of these situations. So I sit down and believe it or not, again, this might surprise people in all of these conversations. The first thing you do is relax and build rapport. You don't go right after anybody. So during the rapport building session, he tells me that his brother manages the loading dock. And for anybody that has an investigative background in distribution, loading docks are ground zero for massive theft and fraud and dishonesty. My buddy didn't think it was important enough to tell me that for part of my preparation. Like I'm literally learning this from the suspect now. And I don't mean to sound extraordinarily judgmental, but if one <laughs> brother is a thief, what are the odds statistically speaking that the other one is as well? So short story, I'd rather be lucky than good. He admits to all of the theft activity in relative short order. It was a polite professional conversation between the two of us. And when he's done, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I have a new problem. I mean, what are the odds that his brother mm -hmm. is stealing as well? And I can't leave without making a sincere attempt to find out. So you talk about aligning what you want someone to say or do with their self-image. I literally looked at him. I thanked him for the professionalism in the conversation. I thanked him for the respect he showed me. And then I said to him, I've got to be honest, I'm jealous of you. Which is a true statement in context. And he literally does this. I'm like, dude, you work with your brother every day. He nods his head. I said, my brother's my best friend on the planet. And he lives on the other side of the country. I get to see him maybe once, twice a year. You see your brother every day, man. I'm jealous. He nods his head. I'll keep this abridged for you. I told him a true story. This really happened in my life. I have a younger brother. He's two years younger than me. Again, my best friend. When I hit the third grade and John hit the first grade, literally the day before we're going to get on the school bus together for the first time, after dinner, my dad walked us up to the top of Brookfield Drive and gave us a speech. Starting tomorrow, you guys are in the real world together. You got to look after each other. You got to take care of each other. Mom and dad won't always be there no matter what happens. You have to take care of each other. And of course, John and I are like, okay, can we get ice cream? <laughs> no, he tells us the whole thing again and make sure that we get it. So John and I got it. And for the rest of our lives, everybody knew if Mike was there, John was far behind. And if John was there, you better look out for Mike. And as I'm telling the story, I literally did this. I said, and there were plenty of times where I walked out thinking, well, that wasn't a good idea, but it didn't matter because John was there. So I had to go too. And when I said that, he literally puffs his chest up and nods his head. And as soon as he nods his head, I said to him, so let me ask you this. What's the most expensive item you and your brother ever took off the loading dock together? And I kid you not, the air compressor. 
And we're now on our way to him confessing to thousands of dollars of theft that he and his brother participated in together, which he probably didn't even tell me 50% of it for the record, but it was more than we knew about going in all because to your point, we demonstrated rapport. We showed that brother to brother bond similarity and allowed him to sit to line his self image up. So now it's not about snitching on your brother. Now it's about the responsibility of the bond of brotherhood that sometimes allows for these things to happen and makes it much easier to talk about. And it is that exact same philosophy. I can do a, like a family example, if, if it's helpful for your viewers as well, that we use in every single one of our conversations. What a story. That's incredible. That is incredible. And yeah, if you're going to tease us with another story, I, I am going to take that. So if you could think of if you could think of a, a family example, let, yeah. let's do that too. Yeah. Real quick. So from my home office where I'm currently standing, I can see my neighbor's house. And when I moved in, he was 82 and I was uh, 30. <laughs> I don't know. How old am I now? 37, 38, something like that. And without too much delay, he and I became extremely close, extremely close. Like my father and I have a special relationship. You know, Chuck was a, you know, secondary father type figure to me. And he passed away two years ago now. Mm. And because of not only our close friendship, but our physical proximity, I was there for the majority of that process. And he, his body failed him. His brain didn't. The dude was crazy smart, crazy witty. He ended up in a rehabilitation facility, didn't want to be there. And to give this man all the credit in the world, he conned his way out. One day I get a phone call saying that they're giving him a ride home. And my wife and I are like, what? He lives in a two-story house by himself. There's no way he conned his way out. All the credit in the world. He gets home. Now I'm over there with my wife, his daughter, and her, his, her husband are there. We're trying to get them all set up for the night, which we do. It becomes apparent he probably can't stay there by himself. The next day, his daughter calls me bent out of shape. She's trying to talk him into going back into the rehabilitation facility, and he won't do it. He refuses. So I ask, well, what have you tried? They've basically tried the inverted parent-child relationship. I know better than you. This is what you need to do. Good luck making that work. And it also is true in business when we do the inverted employee boss relationship or in a negotiation, if somebody perceives they have the power and we try to steal it from them, self-image, conflicted, parental approach, not helpful. So I walk down. Thankfully, she and her husband take a walk. I literally sit down with Chuck at his kitchen table and I just say, hey, man, how you doing? And I let him unload. Let him go. What he's feeling, how he's frustrated, how all, the whole emotional thing. I sat there. Talk about silence. Could have been 10 minutes. Didn't say a word. When he was done, I didn't ask him a question. One of the things that Chuck and I bonded over was his love and my appreciation for automobiles. And shortly, about five or six months prior to this, I had, this is another story you're going to talk about another time. I got away. I went to look at a new truck on a whim and convinced myself I couldn't afford it. So I abandoned my normal negotiation procedure and it bit me. And I realized it bit me too late. Like had I gone in with a different mentality, I probably would be driving that truck right now. But I went in with a defeatist mentality, whatever. So when Chuck was done, I let silence settle for a few seconds. And I just looked at him and I said, hey, Chuck, remember when I tried to buy that Ford F1, that black F-150 last year? And he laughed and he said, yeah, I remember that. I said, 
do you, do you remember the decision-making process I went through after I screwed that up? He said, I don't. I said, after they made me the offer, which to their credit was just inside the limit I gave them, but I gave them the wrong limit. It wasn't good for me. I really wanted the truck. I was emotionally wrapped all around that truck. So I came home and I asked my wife what she thought about the deal. And I called my brother and I asked him what he thought about the deal. Then I talked to you. Then I talked to my stepfather. Then I talked to my dad. Then I talked to you again and my wife again. And the second conversation I was having with my wife that night, we were sitting in bed. She looked at me and she said, Mike, when was the last time you asked five people's opinion on anything? And I looked at him, I said, Chuck, you know what I learned that night? He said, what? And I said, the harder we have to rationalize a decision, the more obvious the right decision becomes. He looked at me and said, will you help me pack my bags? Wow. I'm trying not to get emotional telling that story because it, it still hits a nerve for me. And the last thing I want anyone to perceive is that I'm trying to trade on one of my closest mentors' memories. But think about how many times we find ourselves either with our parents or our bosses or a relationship somewhere where we try to flip the power dynamic. To your point, we try to barge through their defenses and force compliance instead of allowing them to generate the commitment we need. But by allowing them to save face, protect their self-image, line their self-image up with what we're trying to do and use these techniques, yeah, okay, maybe it takes a couple minutes longer than we would like, but the commitment we receive on the back end and the results we achieve validate and substantiate all the prep and all the time we put into it. Oh, my goodness. Your, your next book needs to be on, on storytelling because that, that's powerful. That is powerful. I mean, I, I can't add to that. But what I will do, though, is give you an opportunity to tell the listeners about the book, because if the listeners are like me, they're like, I need some more Mike in my life. This is incredible. Uh, so tell them about the upcoming book. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. So be on the lookout in January for the book Disciplined Listening to be released. And Disciplined Listening really in its current state as we go through the, the final process of editing and structuring the book is really designed to take people through a journey, if you will, to understand how our brains are wired and how our life experience often teaches us to be suboptimal listeners. And then how we can overcome that, not only by applying the seven core behaviors of disciplined listening and really observing these verbal and nonverbal nuances for signs of comfort and discomfort, not truth and lie, but really breaks down and puts procedures on the process to observe like an interrogator and understand what other people are experiencing when we're communicating with them and how to ask more effective questions and how to be more influential and really how to accomplish so many of the things we talked about today, but in much greater depth with more examples. This is great. Can't wait to have you back on to, to highlight that. And thank you, my friend. Thank you for the, uh, the, the very, very practical tips and the stories too. Incredible, incredible work. We appreciate you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been entirely my pleasure. I look forward to coming back. Everybody stay safe, take care of each other. And thank you again. 
Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.